Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. One of the most beautiful and astonishing things about God's creation of humanity is the gift that we have of language, the ability to speak, to put ideas and feelings and expressions into words that can go from inside of me to you and vice versa. And the highest form of this gift of language is analogy. In an analogy, you describe one thing by comparing it to something else. So poetry and similes and metaphors, analogies, those are the most powerful usage of language because when we use an analogy, we actually create something that is new and speaks in new ways. Analogies enable us to see things in a different way by mashing ideas and images together to make something whose whole is more than just the sum of its parts. For example, and I read a lot of novels, so these are just a few from just recent, when I run across a great analogy, I always jot it down, and here's a few from just some recent novels I've been reading. When he took the boy in his arms for a quick, stiff hug, it looked like the side chair was embracing the couch. It's a nice one. Or describing a destroyed town as the Americans came in after retreating Germans in World War II, Smoke had left the eye sockets of the houses with black eyebrows of astonishment. Isn't that beautiful? Or maybe this one's a little bit more accessible. My Saturday night is like a microwave burrito. Very tough to ruin something that starts out so bad to begin with. So that's a pretty good one. Or I always remember this this image, this analogy from a poem I read back in college said, their relationship was like a snowdrift that always stopped several inches away from the house. That one will make you depressed for the rest of the day. 
Or, if you prefer, here's some great ones from my beloved Taylor Swift. I'm shining like fireworks over your sad, empty town. I'm a crumpled up piece of paper, I'll resist from breaking into song, lying here. Or loving him was like driving a new Maserati down a dead-end street. Those are good ones. Can I get an amen for Taylor Swift? All right. (laughs) Analogies crack open the world. Analogies flick on a light switch in our darkened minds. They're like that moment in the old Wizard of Oz movie where it was all black and white, then all of a sudden it becomes technicolor. Analogies are especially important when what we're trying to describe is bigger than mere words and more vibrant than simple explanations can handle. With analogies, we press language to the edge, and when we do, we find there's more room, more space for us to live in. And so, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus, the master teacher, the poet, the preacher, regularly used analogies. His teaching is full of vivid imagery of all kinds, and frequently he used a particular form of analogy we call parables. He used parables to open our minds, to enable us to see things in a new way, to consider what God is up to by mashing together things that we're familiar with, with things that we don't expect. And so as we continue in our joyful preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, we've come now to chapter 13, and it's a collection of Jesus' parables. These are not the only parables in Matthew, not the only parables in Jesus' ministry, but it is a collection of them that represents a bunch of teachings, a bunch of parables, a bunch of analogies of the kingdom of heaven. And last week, Pastor Kevin started this off by walking us through the first 23 verses of Matthew 13. And now I'm going to tackle the next section that goes from verses 24 all the way through 43. If you have a Bible, you can look along or we'll put it on the screen. And to understand this section, I think it's helpful to realize that really this collection of parables has a heading, which is what Pastor Kevin went through last week, the parable of the sower and some explanation. And then it's got two sets of three parables, and I'm going to tackle the first set of them in verses 24 to 43, and, and next week we'll look at 44 to 52. And that heading parable, again, was the parable of the sower. And it's an analogy Jesus uses to describe what his ministry is look like, that, that he's sowing seed liberally and generously, and then you and I are like different kinds of soil that receive it in different ways. And now... He's going to go on and explain a little bit more about what God's coming kingdom looks and feels and tastes like by using three more analogies. So I had verses 31 to 35 read. That's what we just heard. And we'll get to those in a moment. But there's actually a parable right before those that we need to look at first that's part of our set. And it's called the parable in the we- of the weeds in the field, or as we usually call it, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And in one of my typings of that this week, I accidentally typed the wheat and the weed, and I thought, that, that sounds like a kind of like a Colorado edition of Settlers of Catan or something. Like, <laughs> you could sell that. So, but anyways, the wheat and the weeds. Okay, so let me look with you at verse 24, parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? 
An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, although this scenario seems very odd to us, Jesus is actually describing something that happened in the ancient world fair and often enough. The idea that someone who was your enemy would come along and sow seeds of some kind of weed in, on top of the fields you've already sown. It's a kind of like agricultural sabotage. There was, in fact, we know Roman laws that dealt specifically with the crime of sowing bad seeds in a wheat field as an act of revenge. So we know this happened. And destruction of someone else's crops and livestock, it was a very common thing to do to one's enemy, much more damaging than just stealing money because you're talking about one's ability to eat and one's ability to feed your family. And in fact, we often see that retreating troops, when they're leaving an area in a war zone, often set fields afire and kill livestock. I'm just mindful of this, seeing it again, if some of you saw the recent movie 1917, you see that happening in there as the Germans retreat, they're doing this, right? So what Jesus is describing here is actually a pretty realistic scenario for his day and age. And the word for weeds here that are sown, we can pretty well identify from what we know about this area of the world, was the, the seed called darnel, or the plant called darnel. And if you're any botanist here, it's lolium temelintum, in case you're wondering. So there you got it. The thing about this darnel is that it looks like wheat at first. It's the same color. It sprouts the same way. And until it gets a little larger, and then it becomes apparent that it's not a wheat uh, seed, the problem is, by that time, the roots have grown in together. And as Jesus says in this parable, if you tried to just pull out the, the weeds at that point, you would also ruin the wheat crop. And the problem is not just that you get all kind of mixed up together, because Darnell is a rather a toxic plant. It's poisonous. So if you harvested it all together and just mixed it all up together, it would actually make the entire field useless. So the only solution, as Jesus himself points out in the parable, is to wait until the wheat is fully mature, cut down the whole field, and then go through the painstaking work of separating the two different kinds of plants out, wheat and weeds. So again, Jesus is telling a pretty realistic story that I think his hearers would have understood. It'd be like if I got up here and said, you know how it is when you go to the grocery store and you're in a hurry and there's like four or five lines, not at Walmart, there's only one line available at Walmart, despite 32 lines. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not bitter. But the, so you go to Meyer or Kroger, there's like four or five lines, you're in a hurry, you've got all your stuff, and if you're like me, you're calculating how fast those other lines are going to be, right? And so you choose the one you think is going to be the fastest, and then five minutes later, you're still standing there, and you, I can see who I would have been behind. I see those people going through, and then you see the light come on, and they're calling for the manager. So it'd be like if I gave that analogy and then just said, you know, that's what this is. Jesus tells this story that would be very familiar, and then he doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't explain it at all. And I always imagine the disciples' reaction here, right? Because just remember, before this, he's been exercising demons and healing people and saying these amazing things. He just preached the greatest sermon in the history of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, where everybody's response at the end was like, this is amazing, we've never heard anything like this. Now he stands up and gives this like super basic analogy, and I always imagine the disciples kind of giving like a polite clap and kind of looking at each other like, we have these massive crowds here, what, are, what is happening, right? 
Because frankly, the story seems kind of irrelevant and not real clear what it's saying about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't explain it, but actually he goes on. He goes on and starts talking again. And now he goes to two other analogies, and these are more like similes. They're little short stories. Look at verse 31. He says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of the seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay. These little illustrations, I think they're a little bit more understandable. Again, Jesus is using familiar images and experiences common to his day that invite us to ponder things about the kingdom of heaven. And in the case of the mustard seed becoming a tree, the point is that you can have this tiny little seed a bunch of, among a bunch of other garden seeds, and all those other garden seeds may produce tomato plants or other you know, smaller-sized plants, but the mustard seed actually can produce a bush that's between six and eight feet high that birds have been known to sort of roost and nest in. And in the case of the leaven and the dough, again, if you ever looked at a tiny little piece, a, a yeast piece, I don't know what you call it, but whatever it is, a granule of yeast, these tiny pale little things, they're tiny, yet it can turn flour into this amazing fluffy and delicious bread. It's really magical. And it's really, I think in Jesus' day, it would have been more like, they weren't so much, didn't have yeast packets, but it would have been more like what we call today uh, Amish friendship bread, right? So some of you partake of this, like you have this this, uh, yeasty mash together that you divide and share with other people, and then they save a little bit of it, they can make bread from some of it, and then they save a little bit, and you add more ingredients to it, and and the yeast spreads through it, and you can spread it. And the reason we call that friendship bread, and you do that, is because it's a beautiful picture of how love multiplies, right, and spreads. And there's something miraculous about it, that this one little bit can spread and continue to spread the yeast throughout. And that's what it would have been like in, in Jesus' day. They would have always kept a little piece of the, the loaf separately or the, the dough, and then they would weave it into more or knead it into more, and it would work that way. So in both cases, the mustard seed and the leaven and the dough, these analogies are understandable. They're intriguing a little bit. You can understand what Jesus is saying. He's pointing us to the fact that God's kingdom comes into the world and it seems insignificant and yet it often grows to be large. And it'd be similar to our saying of something like, uh, what mighty oaks from little acorns grow? That same sort of idea that a tiny acorn can become a big tree. So that's good. But still, all of this teaching, these analogies are unexpected. I mean, what is going on? Why has he stopped doing what he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount with this very clear, uh, detailed teaching, and now he's just using these short little analogies? Well, last week in our text, and I encourage you maybe go back and listen to Pastor Kevin's sermon and maybe read the text as well, he began to give one of the reasons why Jesus teaches like this now. In verses 13 to 17, Jesus explains that he's teaching in parables because his parables actually are separating people out into those who want to learn and understand and those who do not. And now in our next two verses, in verses 34 and 35, we get another reason why Jesus is teaching in parables. Let, let, look at these t- verses here in verse 34 and 35. 
Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables, and he didn't say anything to them without using a parable. Why? So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So Matthew explains that Jesus' parable teaching is actually a prophetic word. And he, he quotes from Psalm 78.2, and back in Psalm 78, which is written by the, the poet Asaph, it's a very long psalm, it's 72 verses long, you, you could read it this afternoon, Asaph retells the story of Israel, and he talks about how God rescued his people Israel from slavery in Egypt at the Exodus, but that they grumbled and rebelled and disobeyed, and so over time, they continue to get themselves into trouble, and they're defeated by their enemies, but then finally, God is going to raise up and rose up again a mighty worshiping King David to rescue and shepherd God's people with love and care. And Asaph begins this whole story by saying that he's uttering the same word that Matthew uses here, a parable. That is a, a mysterious and beautiful story that actually goes back to the foundation of the world. So Matthew picks up on this and then describes Jesus as the ultimate son of David, the true king of Israel, who's actually standing in the line of God's authoritative spokesmen who are prophets uttering the true mysteries of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So Jesus is being presented here as the consummation of this prophetic word that describes what is the true nature of reality, even though we don't always see it. Okay, cool. We can accept that. But I think we're still left asking, but what do these particular parables mean? And it's clearly a set of three, and maybe you're beginning to see that there is something that ties them all together. I think it's this. Jesus is being presented as the one who reveals to us that the kingdom of heaven is going to grow unstoppably, but mysteriously. It's going to grow unstoppably, but mysteriously in a hidden and unexpected way, but in an inevitable way, God's kingdom is growing in the world. Did you notice that all three of those are about growth? Inevitable growth, the wheat and the weeds and the mustard seeds, the yeast, they're all things that are growing and spreading inevitably. In the case of the wheat and the weeds, there's opposition, but it still grows inevitably. In the case of the mustard seed and the leaven, the kingdom's growth will not come with great fanfare in the world, but it will still be real, eventually overtaking in a surprising and miraculous way everything. And all this is coming through Jesus. So Jesus is using these three parables to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven that he is bringing about through himself. God is going to return from heaven to earth to reestablish his beautiful ways upon the world. And this kingdom may look at first very small and insignificant, hidden, but it is inevitable and unstoppable. Okay. Again, that's great. That's encouraging. But Jesus doesn't stop there. It turns out there's more going on than we first thought about that first parable of the wheat and the weeds. Because look one more time, now look at verse 36. It says, after he said those things, he left the crowd, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, hey, would you explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field? So if you're not sure what the wheat and the weeds parable means, you're in good company because the disciples had no idea either. And so he answered, 
The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So although we can see that all three of the parables together speak of this unstoppable hidden growth, it turns out not to be the whole story. This final parable and its explanation adds an urgency, an intensity to that parable that was more than we probably got in our first hearing of it. It turns out that the wheat and weeds parable is not just a simple analogy, but it's actually a picture of the end of the world. And so Jesus goes through all the bits of it, or most of the bits of it, and shows that they each have a deeper meaning. Jesus is the one sowing the seed, just like he was in the parable of the sower last week. The field is the world this time, but this time the seed is not the word of God like it was in the sower. This time the seed is Christians. It's disciples of Jesus, the people of the kingdom. We are in the world as God's people, but in the world there are also those who are not part of God's kingdom. These are the evil people, or as he calls, the sons of the evil one. And that's shocking. But this is the same thing as Jesus says elsewhere, that everyone here has a father. There's only two choices. You either have the heavenly father or your father is the devil, Jesus says. There's no in between. And if that's not intense enough, the harvest time in, is, in the parable is referring to the end of this current age when Jesus will return in glory and bring about the great separation of all people into their respective families, those of the Heavenly Father or those of the devil, with accompanying results, the one group to just punishment and the other to glory and life. So this analogy is about the hidden and unstoppable growth of the kingdom, but it adds this new element to it of this urgent and intense pushing us to wake up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. So I hope I've helped you see that this is a set of parables. It does have a point, a rather intense point. But I also realize you and I, we don't live in parables. We live in real life. We live busy, complicated disappointing at times, pleasurable, frustrating, sometimes confusing lives. Chef Jesus has prepared quite a feast for us here, but we all have to leave restaurant church and eat other meals and live outside these walls. And so I want to give you three little Chinese takeaway boxes. And all analogies break down, and I think that one probably just did. So let me just leave that point and ask it this way, what are three things that I think Jesus is taking or teaching us here? And I, I want to give you three little phrases, three phrases that I think will help us take what Jesus is saying in these parables and make them more real in our lives. The first phrase is this, patient ferment. Patient ferment. I love this phrase. 
And I get it from a book by a scholar named Alan Kreider. His book is called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And Kreider is a seasoned scholar, asks this crucial question, this very insightful question, and that's this. How in the world did this, chi- this tiny little Jewish-based break-off sect that became Christianity, how did it not only survive the mighty and oppressive Roman Empire, but actually go on to thrive within it, to transform it, and eventually within a few hundred years to actually take over the entire Roman Empire that was opposed to it and be- make it a Christian empire? How in the world did that happen? And his answer is both brilliant and beautiful. He says, I think rightly so, that a big part of the reason why Christianity was able to influence and transform a culture that was even opposed to it is because it inculcated a culture of patience. A culture of patience. Through inviting people into the church, into a life of teaching and worship, into habits and service to society, helping the poor and rescuing babies and starting hospitals and taking good care of women and children and widows, sharing wealth, nonviolent ethics, Christianity created a yeasty, fermenting culture that over time spread like friendship bread and like a mustard seed that becomes a tree. And it transforms an entire culture that was opposed to it. Friends, this is such a beautiful vision of Christ and his church that I think aligns exactly with these parables that Jesus is teaching. How does the kingdom of heaven operate in the world? Not with bravado and fanfare and self-protective tendencies, but with wisdom and love and patience doing good and beautiful things, protecting the vulnerable, making art, restoring people physically and psychologically, building beautiful things, inviting any who would come into the life of Jesus' people to learn a whole new way of seeing and being in the world, to take Jesus' yoke upon them. And when we do that with humility and joy, then inevitably, unexpectedly, unstoppably, mysteriously, the kingdom of heaven will expand. It will grow. We are wheat that God has planted that will bear fruit. We are seeds that will mature into trees that a haven of birds can rest in. We are yeast that multiplies and spreads joy and love. We're salt. We're light. We are branches connected to the true vine. We could go on and on. This is the vision of what creating a culture of patience can do because God is behind it and his kingdom will not stop. And this vision should inspire and encourage us to press on in doing good. As Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 16, he said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds, the good things you are doing, and thereby thereby glorify your Father in heaven. And these parables speak to our need for patience as God wisely and perfectly does his work in the world. Because all these parables really, part of what they're doing is they're answering the question, if Jesus is truly the king of the universe and God incarnate and is bringing the kingdom, why didn't everybody just believe? Well, part of the answer is because there is evil in the world and that God is at work inevitably, unstoppably, but in a hidden way and mysterious way 
and that calls us to be patient. But we're just like James and John. Do you remember good old James and John in the end of Luke chapter 9 when Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and they go through a Samaritan village that isn't particularly receptive to Jesus and James and John say, do you want us to call down fire upon heaven and destroy them now? Like they had seen Jesus do all these amazing things and they, you know, they've got in their mind, okay, we're kicking butt basically, here we go. And do you want us to destroy them? And Jesus rebukes them because that's not how the kingdom of heaven comes. It does not come with fire destroying. It comes slowly and mysteriously like yeast and a mustard seed and wheat that is growing. So be patient, my friends. Build beautiful things art and businesses and service to others. No matter who gets elected in November, no matter which way the economy goes or doesn't go, no matter whether a virus spreads widely across our country like it is in other countries, these are all things we can care about, we can work to do something about, but whatever we think and feel and do needs to be rooted in this vision, this certainty that the kingdom of heaven will mysteriously and unstoppably grow. It does not matter what other things happen and what the world does. Instead of giving yourself over to being aggressive or anxious, focus your energy and efforts on doing good, on being seeds and yeast and light and salt, and God will bring his kingdom. Patient ferment. Second phrase, more briefly, sure hope. This same confidence we can have that God is bringing his kingdom growth comes down to our personal lives as well. And please hear me, growth takes time in us, especially significant lasting growth. Dandelions can crop up in a night. Oaks take decades. But from an oak, you can build a house. You can get a microwaved burrito into your mouth in 60 seconds, but if you want a dry-aged steak with asparagus, that's going to take some time. And the point is that if you are a Christian, God is at work in you, and this is a slow sometimes but unstoppable kingdom growth that is not only outward but also inward. It is an oak type of growth. If you are a believer in Christ, he is at work growing in you even though it is often slow. So be patient with yourselves. Be patient with others. Especially parents of teenagers, be patient with them. You see all the stupid things they're doing, and you're worried. I get it. But be patient. Transformative growth doesn't happen instantly. When we first become Christians, I think a lot of times we experience rapid transformations. And I think that's true for a number of reasons. One is, I think it's partly just God gives it to us as a gift, as a testimony to the truthfulness. It's kind of like the first time, you, it's like beginner's luck in golf or something. It makes you come back because you actually thought you were good until so you went back, right? But the algae breaks down there somewhere. But the point is God, God, gives us, God gives us this amazing growth, but it's partly also because there's so much that needs to change at first that we experience this rapid growth, right? But then as the years wear on after you've been a Christian, the growth doesn't, it just rarely feels that exciting because it's slow deepening growth. It's often imperceptible and it's marked by frustrations and setbacks and 
sins we keep falling into and bad habits that draw us down. And it does matter, of course, that we pursue God and form good habits like coming to church weekly and community group and service. But here's the vision I want you to have. God is a happy gardener. He is a very happy gardener. He has planted you in his field and he doesn't come out there every day and yell at you to grow. As a wise and happy and good gardener, he knows that it takes time. He knows that something that is worth growing is going to be a long-term reality. And he is very patient with us. And so we need to, have, we need to rest in this sure hope that his kingdom is not only working in the world, but it is deepening in us in often a slow and hidden and imperceptible way. And then a third phrase, urgent call. So patient, ferment, sure hope, urgent call. At the same time that we need to be patient with God's work in the world and with each other and with ourselves, there is another note in this in these parables, and that is one of urgency. Again, that the set ends with verse 43. If you have ears to hear, listen. If you're not a student of Jesus, if you're not a Christian disciple, there is an urgency to Jesus' teaching today that we will ignore only to our peril. When Jesus interprets this final parable, the weed and weeds, with us, he's inviting us into something that frankly feels very uncomfortable. And that is the reality of a future judgment. The reality of a time coming when this age, as we know it, will come to a close. The kingdom of heaven comes fully to earth and Jesus will reign completely. And there is no reason for us to be anything less than completely honest that when we read these verses, that verses 41 and 42, they make us feel uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable. In fact, if this language of judgment and punishment doesn't make you feel some discomfort, then you're either clueless or heartless. Because the truth of a future judgment where good and evil people will be separated is a very clear reality of the gospel and a part of Jesus' clear teaching. And if those verses of verses 41 and 42 make you angry, it's okay. If they make you want to pull back from the God of the Bible, let we just listen to me for one minute. You want justice. Everything in you wants justice. You want evil to be punished. That's, why, that's what these verses are talking about. That You know that feeling you have when you want there to be justice? I mean, justified. I mean, tr true, not just self-promoting. But that moment where you want there to be real justice in the world, that is how God feels about his good and perfect creation that is corrupted in rebellion. And it is good and right for God to bring justice, to put an end to evil, to rape and sex trafficking and disease. All the things that are the function of the fall and brokenness and evil in the world, God is going to come to set the world to right. And that is what you want. That is what you want. That is what you were made for. And if that part were not part of the Bible, then it would all just be a fairy tale. But this is built into who we are, and it is what God is going to do. But 
That is not the main tone of the Bible. That is not the timbre of God's voice. Just the opposite. God is constantly saying, as Jesus is saying, come, you don't have to be a part of that. Come and find life. You do not have to be part of the destruction when the kingdom of heaven comes. Come and find life. And so there's an urgent call in this parable, an invitational challenge that there is a reality coming. Each of us individually at our death or if any of us are alive, When God returns in Christ, there is a real judgment coming, but the point is not a mean-spiritedness or a glee in judgment, but a wake-up call so that you and I will wake up and see the reality that we will only find life if we are aligned with God and his kingdom. And so this is a beautiful invitation. Did you, and, and let me just read those, those words he says at the end there. Again, this picture, this analogy of what it's going to be like. Verse 43, then at that moment, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That is what you're made for. That is what you long for. To shine, to be free. To be free and experience unadulterated, untainted joy. That is what you're made for, and that is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying this kingdom is coming inevitably, unstoppably, mysteriously, and if you come into it, if you have ears to hear even today and come forward and listen, you will experience the joy that you are longing for and that you are made for. Amen? That is good news. And so we end every service here at Sojourn by remembering this, by celebrating this, that if you are a Christian, you get to partake of the fact that this future shining, this joy that is free and full, will come to a moment of consummation at our death and at Jesus' return, and we're remembering that. We're looking forward and backwards by these elements. We're remembering that Jesus gave his body to be broken and that there's a future time coming when we will celebrate this feast with him again. And so if you are following Christ, if you are a believer, we invite you to come forward, partake of this by taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the the wine or the juice, which represents blood, and partake of it into your body as a reminder of what God is at work doing. If you're not a believer today, we are so glad you're here. And we want to talk with you and help you taste and see the Lord's goodness. This isn't something magical that's going to do anything for you. Right? This is an act of faith. So just stay in your seats. We are thrilled you're here. Let's talk to you afterwards. But if you're a believer, come forward, partake of this joy as we look forward to God's future kingdom. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.